Well, for the last couple of months, uh, we've been in a series we're calling Quotable Jesus. And the whole premise of this is that um, we've been looking at some of the most memorable sayings by one of the most quoted, if not the most quoted figure in history. That's Jesus. Now, today's quote is something that may be familiar. It may be one of the most familiar things that Jesus said, um, but it also may be one of the most challenging. It's not because it's difficult to understand, but in part because Jesus says something here that is difficult to accept and something else that is difficult to live out. It's one of the longer sections that we've looked at uh, uh, during this series. So as I read, I want you to listen. I want you to look, if you can, um, and pick out the part that perhaps may be more challenging, something that we may find difficult to accept, and the part that's, that's more difficult to live out. The text is found in Matthew chapter 25. It begins with verse 31. You can either follow along with words on the screen, or if you'd like to, you can take the Pew Bible. It's on page 1513, page 1513 of the Pew Bible. These are the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, all you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you see, us, see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm sure you quickly picked up on the part of what Jesus said that many have difficulty understanding or accepting. Not understanding, but accepting. It's the idea that one day, everyone from everywhere and every time will come together in a place where Jesus will sort them into two groups, what he calls the sheep and the goats. That's just a metaphor for the righteous and the unrighteous. The goats will be sent to eternal punishment, but the sheep will be rewarded with eternal life. Now, Jesus is saying that this is a big deal, and being on the right side of this equation, the right side of this, is of eternal importance. Now, the idea of judgment is not a particularly appealing idea today, especially the eternal punishment part. We would admit, all of us, that we've made mistakes along the way, but sinners, that really seems extreme. And eternal punishment, hellfire and damnation, that's just something we don't like. Except at the same time, we also deeply crave justice. 
For example, if you have been wronged or hurt or in some other way harmed, you deeply want to see those who have hurt you or mistreated you brought to justice. Now, sure, some go to the extreme of wanting revenge, but even if you're not demanding an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, you want the perpetrator to pay and wrongs to be righted. It only seems fair. And the writers of the Bible agree with you. That's why in places like the Psalms and in the prophets in the Old Testament, you will find writers crying out to God for justice. And you'll hear God in response promising never to forget, for example, the poor or the widow or the orphan or the immigrant. But even when we want God to judge those who hurt others, we're not so sure that we'll like the idea of one day being judged ourselves. Jesus tells us that one day we'll be accountable for what we've done. And as we'll see in a moment, what we've failed to do. Each one of us will find ourselves in one of these two groups. And how that all gets sorted out is what Jesus talks about next. Now, before we explain that, I should mention that there is a minor interpretive controversy in this particular Bible passage. And it's about who Jesus is addressing his comments to. Now, there's two schools of thought. One is called the traditional view, although it's not as well known today, but it is the view that many have had through history. And that is that the least of these that Jesus is talking about are his disciples, not specifically the 12, but really anybody who has chosen to follow Jesus. So the idea here is that it's how we receive the disciples and their message that determines on which side um, of of the equation we lie. And that's true. But the other view here is that it's a more expansive idea. So when Jesus refers to the poor and the marginalized, the overlooked and the ignored, the vulnerable, those that we consider unimportant, he's saying that it's how we receive those, whether they believe yet or not, that determines how God will judge us. Now let me just say it's a fairly complicated debate. I read 12 different scholars this week. They fall on different sides of the equation here. And the whole thing gets really technical and academic. And in the end, it feels like the theological equivalent of arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And the truth is, is that both ideas are important and affirmed elsewhere in the Bible. So which one is correct? And I've got to tell you, I flip back and forth over the years. Um, And right now... And I think there are good arguments, by the way, for both sides. But I lean toward the view that you may be more familiar with. That even though Jesus uses the term brothers and sisters, that he's using it as an expansive term to include all of humanity. So it's not just those who believe in him right now that he's saying we are judged in terms of how we respond to. But he's telling us to feed the hungry, to give a drink to the thirsty, to house the homeless, to welcome the immigrant, clothe those without adequate clothing, to look after the sick, visit those in prison. And he's mentioning, really, we should do that regardless of whether or not they believe. These values are mentioned often, by the way, in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. So this text is perhaps the most memorable and important explanation of our responsibility to all of humanity. How we treat others matters. In fact, Jesus would say, it could determine your eternal destiny. Now, at this point, for a few of you at least, maybe some more of you, alarm bells are going off because you're thinking, wait a second, isn't salvation only by grace? It's a gift, not something you can earn. So what is it here? Is it a gift or is Jesus saying we've got to do something in order to earn it? And the shorter answer is, it's both. Even though that can be easily misconstrued, the fact is is that both are important, and it's the relationship between the two that is important. And it's important for us to get that right. Now, the first thing we ought to acknowledge is that the Bible tells us that we, uh, if we're judged by our actions, all of us would fall short. 
The standard laid out for us is a standard that none of us can keep. The example that Jesus set for us is one that none of us can follow perfectly, which means that even as good as we may think we are, we're all comparatively in the same boat. Sure, some people are better than others, but we all have our own junk, stuff we regret that we just as soon not see on our Facebook feed or pictures shared on Instagram. That's why so many of us over the years have put, so many over the years have pinned their hopes on the mercy of God and what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, the message, the good news of the Bible is that Jesus lived a life that we may have tried to live. He set an example for us, an example that we fail to follow, fail to measure up to. And then Jesus died a death that we deserved. He didn't deserve it, but he died on our behalf and was judged by God for the things that we have done. Now, all was not lost because Jesus rose from the dead, showing his power over sin and death, giving us the opportunity, if we identify with him, to find life in his name. And it's a big deal because without Jesus, we would face judgment. Without what Jesus did for us on the cross, we would not experience the eternity that he offers us through what he did for us on the cross. It's something we can receive by simple faith in what Jesus has done for us. And this may be a familiar message to some of you. Others of you, maybe it's a new idea. But it's the idea of what Christians call grace. The idea of an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. That we don't have to try to live perfect lives, even though that should be a goal. Instead, we put our faith in Jesus. And it's an idea that has transformed the lives of thousands, millions, even billions through the centuries. And I know that some of you have embraced that message. Some of you may have done it a long time ago, others more recently. And others may just be considering it for the first time. So let me encourage you to take a step of faith to say yes to Jesus and receive the forgiveness and new life that he offers. Now, what you're also thinking here is, well, if Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, um, is he being inconsistent? If he's talking about what we do is important versus this idea of grace. Now, let me just say that the entire Bible talks about both concepts, and we have to bring them together. The clear message is that salvation's by grace alone, but it also, this faith has to be lived out. It's not something that can just remain in our heads. It needs to become real in our lives. James is the younger brother of Jesus, and he once wrote this in James 2.17. He said, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So yes, salvation by grace alone is true, but it has to be accompanied by being lived out in our lives. So what flows out of what God has done for us is out of gratitude, we want to live that out and serve others. Serve the poor with joy. If Christ, um, whatever we do, will feel like drudgery if we don't do it out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Can't do it through sheer willpower. But if we serve God, if we are grateful for what Jesus has done for us, we will live this out and learn to love the unlovable and serve the needy. Our hearts will be changed. Let me just give you an example. I was listening to a podcast a few months ago um, and told the story of a woman, young woman named Amanda Lindhout. Um, she's a journalist and had spent quite a bit of time in some very difficult areas of the world. Um, 2008, she went to East Africa to report on a humanitarian crisis, and she said in this podcast that she was no stranger to dangerous countries. She'd been to Iraq and Afghanistan over the years as a journalist. But when she arrived that August in Somalia, um, she ended up in a very difficult position. She was captured by a criminal gang and held hostage for 15 months. 
Now, many of you may know that it's the policy of countries like the United States and Canada and Great Britain not to pay ransoms for hostages because the whole idea is that if you start paying, then pretty soon you create an incentive for kidnappers to, to go and uh, suddenly have a market for hostages. So the idea is you don't pay and therefore they won't do it, although it happens. Now, what happened is for months, Amanda's family worked, some with the Canadian government, some with other private citizens, to see their daughter released and eventually, the family really became desperate. And they realized that in order to get their daughter back, they were going to have to break the rules. Amanda's mom lives in Calgary, and so she began a one-person crusade to raise enough money to pay the ransom that these kidnappers had asked for. So she started, she made a binder, it had her daughter's picture on the cover, and inside were pictures and articles she'd written, and she began to meet with people. And people gave, in fact, thousands gave. And eventually they had the million and a half dollars that they needed to pay for her release. So 15 months later in late 2009, Amanda came home. Now Amanda in this interview that I heard acknowledges that there are really big ethical issues that surround her case. In the interview, she was asked how she felt about all these people contributing to bring her home. Here's what she said. She said, everyone who gave knew the money was going to criminals. But they determined my life was worth it. So I guess I'll try to live a life that is worth it. Matthew 28, or 20, 28, tells us that Jesus once said this. The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if Jesus gave his life for us, might we not, that we might not experience the consequences of our sins, can we not reach out in gratitude for what he's done and serve those most vulnerable among us. In other words, to live a life that is worth it. Now, the question here is, who are we to serve? Now, remember, first, Jesus told them that if they did any of these things, they would be serving him. So ultimately, we're serving him. But Jesus explains who those people are. Who is it that we serve? So they asked Jesus, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And Jesus said this, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So the two questions we need to ask here are, who is Jesus asking us to serve and what are we to be doing? And really the who question is simple. It's the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, those with little status. And Jesus gives six examples. He talks about the hungry. I don't know if you know, but about one in seven people in our world today don't have enough to eat. And in the developing world, one out of four children are considered malnourished. About nine million people each year die of hunger in the world. And it's entirely preventable. Now, sometimes it's complicated because of political instability or, or collapse. And people are in places where no one can really go safely. And so people are starving in places like that. But in other places, it's just a matter of simple distribution. There's more food in one place than people can possibly eat and less in others than they need. Or the thirsty. In some places in the world, families spend really literally hours a day making certain that they have enough water for drinking and cooking and washing. And in some of those communities, the water that they have is teeming with bacteria and parasites and waterborne diseases that make them sick. Globally now, I'm told that there are 600 million people that don't have adequate water within easy walking distance from their home. Now, the good news is that's down from a billion just eight years ago, 2010. So we're making progress, but there's still more that needs to be done. Or when he talks about strangers, 
Primarily what he's talking about is immigrants and refugees. Right now there are 65 million people in the world that are forcibly displaced persons, people who are living away from their homes, in some cases a long way away from their homes, against their will. They're not going somewhere for economic opportunity because of either uh, famine or geopolitical events or natural disasters. They had to leave where they were living because it was just not viable. So some of them are stuck in refugee camps in some very out-of-the-way places in this world. And they just can't do anything for themselves. That's, by the way, why City Church is partnering with IAFR, the International Association for Refugees. And we've got a trip this summer where six folks from City Church are going to Rome to work in a refugee center for several weeks. Another group Jesus mentions are the poor. He actually mentions adequate clothing. But understand that he's talking about those who are poor, who don't have enough of the basics of life. Now, in the United States, if you take our entire GDP and you divide it by the number of people and the number of days in a year, you'll find out that in the U.S., we live on about $100 a day. It's what it costs all of us to live, housing, food, clothing, etc. But a billion people in the world today live on less than a dollar a day. So adequate clothing is just the beginning of their needs. Or the sick. Just take infant mortality. Infant mortality among infants and children is 80 times more prevalent in the developing world than it is here in the United States. And we're not even at the top of that list. <coughs> and then there are those in prison. Let's just take the United States. Just under one in 100 Americans are living currently in a prison. Now, some of these folks have committed heinous crimes, and they're, paying the, they're suffering the consequences for their actions. Others, though, frankly, are simply addicts who need treatment, not incarceration. And life in prison is grim. Not as grim, perhaps, as it is in other parts of the world, but it's not a great place to be. And even when those who are incarcerated eventually serve their time and get out, they find that the world outside is a very difficult place, in part because we have a stigma around felonies that is something that many of them cannot shake. Elsewhere in the world, you'll find people who are political prisoners, imprisoned even for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a forgotten group of people, almost like the lepers in Jesus' day is what those who are incarcerated are for us today. Now, let me just say that the list Jesus gives is not exhaustive. It includes the basic needs like food, water, and clothing. It tells us to be hospitable, especially to the displaced, and it tells us to care for the sick and those who are hurting. But there are a lot of things that we could add to this list. Substance abuse and illness and unemployment and homelessness, sex trafficking, persistent racism, environmental devastation, all sorts of things that are wrong in our world where people suffer because of these things that they're often, they're not their fault, it's they're trapped in these for a variety of reasons. The bottom line is that the righteous in this story are commanded to do something, to feed someone, give a drink, welcome an immigrant, put clothes on someone who doesn't have enough um, to wear, to take care of a sick person or to visit someone in prison. Now, what they're being told is not to do everything, but to do something. Many of these pro problems are probably, on a human level at least, impossible to eradicate. Uh, about a year ago, I went to a seminar on the international refugee crisis, and the speaker said that if you, if any one of us could solve that particular problem, we would win the Nobel Prize. It's that big an issue. But we can do something, and many of the things that we can do are very small. You don't need to be wealthy or powerful or connected. You just have to be a little bit creative to look for a need and meet it, to do something, almost anything, to do something that turns us inside out. Because what we often do is look at our own needs. We're consumed with our own 
preferences and desires. And what we need to do is to look outside of ourselves, not put ourselves first, our country first, any group that we're part of first, and start to think about the needs of others. And we need to get started. Let me give you a way that may be a little surprising to you that I think we can all do this and live this out. And to do it, I want to just tell you a little story from years ago when I was working for General Mills. I had an early morning flight to Kansas City, um, got on, I think, a 7 o'clock flight um, or 6 o'clock, something like that. It was summer, really sunny, beautiful outside. Um, And I was going down to meet with a supplier that we were negotiating an extension of a contract with, a little company um, outside Kansas City. I ended up that morning with a window in first class, a window seat in first class. I like windows. And um, I had a little New Testament that I always carried in my briefcase. And so I started the first part of that flight by reading my Bible. And I read this passage from Matthew 25. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Now, my understanding of this in the past had always been that this meant that I needed to volunteer at a food shelf or a homeless shelter or go visit people in prison. And all of that's true, but I wasn't doing it. And so I was a little disoriented, kind of a little uncomfortable, frankly. Landed, I went to my meetings, I spent all day with this little company, which was a fascinating little organization that had grown dramatically. They had a few hundred employees at that time, but just a few years before had had maybe 20 or 30. But because of creativity and some great leadership, they were doing really well. So I got back to the airport and got on the plane and was flying back with Matthew 25 kind of circulating in my mind and thinking about this company I'd been at And it suddenly dawned on me that even my job, and certainly this CEO, I have no idea whether he was a person of faith or not, was doing something that was really, in some ways, an obedient way of living out this particular text. Because if you provide a job, you feed, you clothe, you house someone, maybe even keeping them from being desperate enough to commit a crime. And that might sound simplistic, but I believe it's true that our work can meet the needs of many that communities prospers and cities flourish and people's lives are transformed when we do whatever it is we're given to do. And it's not just business. We need all sectors of society doing what is best so that society can flourish. Market forces are important, but Adam Smith's invisible hand is not the hand of God. Business has an important role in creating valuable goods and services and meaningful work, but we also need the education sector and healthcare and social work and nonprofits and NGOs to see human societies flourish. And many of you are in those fears of life. When Jesus condemns those he calls goats, it isn't because they've killed anyone or slept with someone that they're not married to or stole anything. It's because of what they didn't do rather than what they did. It's what theologians call the sins of omission. In the Book of Common Prayer, the prayer book that is used in the Anglican tradition, there's a prayer that says this. We have left undone, it's a prayer of confession, we have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we've done those things that we ought not to have done, and there's no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy on us, miserable offenders. We've left undone those things that we ought to have done. So it may be that our biggest failure in life isn't the things we've done that are wrong. It's the things that we have neglected and failed to do. And that's what makes the warning that Jesus gives so sobering. He says to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. 
Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And that's a sobering warning. If we keep withholding mercy, if we fail to see Jesus in the eyes of either our love-hungry or hungry neighbors, if we ignore them, then we have ignored Jesus. And we might even be on the path to hell. How we treat others matters. Last year, a famous preacher died. It wasn't Billy Graham, and I'm not even going to mention his name because few of you have heard of him, although in certain circles, he's well-known. He had achieved considerable success. At one point, uh, probably 20 years ago, he was recognized by Newsweek magazine as one of the greatest communicators in the, in the world. At one point, he was the president of a major theological society. At another point, he was the president of a seminary. And he was once asked to speak to a group of graduate students about his work and and to give some tips for success. And he didn't exactly fulfill what he was asked to do. Instead, he talked about Matthew chapter 25. He told the students that I could tell you a lot of different things about how to do your job as ministers. But he said, don't forget to focus on the least of these. And then he gave a couple of examples. One time he said he was leaving a class after he'd finished teaching and all the students had left. He was packing up his briefcase. He noticed that one young woman was in the back of the room she was sitting while everyone had left, and she, he, he began to walk toward her because he was drawn to her. He felt prompted to go and talk with her, and he noticed that she was crying, and he asked her what was going on, and she told him that just a few days earlier, her father had died, and a month before, her brother had died, and so he took the time to sit down and listen to her story and to pray with her. Then he told about another time. He said this time uh, he had just received a big award. He'd also published a new book. He was getting royalty money. There was a prize for the award that he had gotten. And his wife told him about a couple at the school that he was teaching at at that time, a young couple who were struggling financially. And she gently suggested that he take some of the money that he'd just received and that they anonymously give th this money to this couple to help them out. Now, he said, I don't tell you this to students. He said, I'm not telling you this to call attention to myself, but to give some examples of how important it is to put the words of Jesus into practice. And let us do the same. Let's pray. Father, we are beyond grateful for the gift of eternal life, the gift that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. But Father, may that not just stay in our heads. May that affirmation of faith not just be words, but may it be lived out. Lived out by thinking about those who are the least among us. Those who don't gather attention, who don't get headlines or any publicity, but people who need the love of Jesus and they need our hands as well. They need us to serve them. Father, there are so many needs around us that it can be easy for us to be overwhelmed. But show us the one or two things that we ought to do, even yet this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.